welcome everyone to another episode of ego check with the id dm. my name is michael mallon and today i have the great pleasure of being joined by not one but two guests and not one but two adams. i'm joined by adam johns and adam davis of wheelhouse workshop which has been providing i would say therapy skills to uh, Seattle area residents uh, through tabletop role-playing games. Uh, they've been working with uh, youth in that area, and I'm really excited to talk with them about how they use tabletop role-playing games to teach social skills and a variety of other topics. So, gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Excellent. So would you both uh, kind of introduce yourselves and give us a little bit about your background professionally and also uh, in terms of getting getting started in using games in this kind of uh, approach that you have? Yeah. So my name is Adam Davis. Um, I have a master's degree in education with a specialization in drama therapy. And so I've been teaching and using um, drama games and activities for, for kids helping them achieve psychological benefits for going on 10 years now. And I've also worked in the public schools. And um, we've been doing uh, Wheelhouse Workshop for about th three years, but we've been doing uh, applied role-playing games for a little bit longer than that. I'll let Adam give his little intro first, though. <laughs> uh, so I'm Adam Johns, and I have a master's degree in couple and family therapy, and I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist in the Kirkland area. Um, and I guess we've been, I, well, I've been a gamer for a long, long time. Um, but I've been a private practice counselor for uh, almost three years now, um, and that's we've been doing applied role playing games for like five years. Yeah, about five years. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we we got we started Wheelhouse Workshop in 2013, um, and before that, we were uh, using role playing games sort of as a a social group uh, activity, and then we realized we could. Uh, we could take it and use it more intentionally and be the be the therapeutic game master and help the kids um, achieve even more when we were using the game very intentionally. So, um, you know, the game role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons have a lot of inherent benefits and there's a lot of good things that people can get out of it just by playing the game um, as a game master or as a player, at, you know, just at a drop in at a delve. Um, there's a lot of great things you can get with exploring looking at the world through someone else's eyes. There's so many great benefits to playing the game. And so we were seeing that. And when we were um, game mastering and realizing that if we took a more intentional lens on the kinds of skills we wanted kids to get out of the game, we could really hone in on those things and have them experience those those experiences they needed to have through their character, who they were you know, obviously choosing to play those characters for a reason. That's great. And how does it work exactly where you advertise that you have this service? Do the parents or the children they pay for this? Do they do you volunteer your time? Like how does that exactly work? Um, right now we have we, we run groups on sort of a quarterly basis and the parents pay to, to come in and we, we're mostly trying to get like attention to uh, parents more than anybody else um, for who are really looking for, for help for their kids. Our rate right now is sixty dollars a session. We do a lot of sliding scale, and the reality is, is that it's it's tough to be able to to get in and be able to attend groups like this, and and um, the service that we're providing is definitely you know uh, on the side of therapy. It's therapeutic services, so so we always want to try to make sure to get in any anybody that we can, you know, trying trying to get you in the door for whatever it is. But that gives us the availability of being able to say that that we're professional being able to carve out the time in our days so that we can, we can, we can actually come in and plan for and run groups, uh, just definitely an important part. 
And for both of for both of you, this is something that is a a side venture. It's not your full time job, correct? Yeah, uh, someday we would love for this to be our full time job. So this is this is um, like I don't know if we if um, you mentioned this, but we run five groups a week right now. Wow. Um, okay. And this is this is where we're where we're heading. Adam is a, a private practice a clinician, like he said. This is uh, I am right now dedicating my life full time to doing therapeutic game mastery. So, uh, I, you know, I have worked, as, as I said before, I have worked as a public school teacher and things like that, but I left doing that uh, in order to, to dedicate myself full-time to the therapeutic application of role-playing games. That's quite a sentence. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. fantastic. Yeah, I have to tell my dad that, too. Yeah. <laughs> good, good luck. You probably have to add some explanation as to what's happening. Yeah, actually, if I will say this, I, I you know, I, like I said, I've been doing this for about five years, and I had to, you know, have those conversations around the holidays about what, what I'm doing with my life. And uh, it, my dad was kind of on the fence about it. It was actually Adam Johns who convinced my dad the uh, the benefits of therapeutic role-playing games. Adam is, Adam is amazing at giving a good pitch uh, for, for uh, you know, resistant dads from South Texas, how to, how to uh, be excited about his son dedicating his life to therapeutic application of Dungeons & Dragons. It's a honed skill. <laughs> Is this something that like insurance covers? I'm just curious, being a psychologist myself and just wondering about the nuts and bolts of that aspect of it, or is something where families just you know pay out of pocket? How does that work? Um, sure, I mean that's a that's a great question. It's one one area that we're like uh, still almost kind of new to. For the most part, insurance will cover it if if insurance is willing to cover something like social skills groups. Um, okay. Uh, so we, I, I can give my license out for people to use um, in order to build their insurance, but diagnosis isn't part of our our general our general group makeup and and not part of what we do. And so I can kind of give my license out, and my MPI number, and and um, let people bill that to their insurance, submit that to their insurance, and kind of see where that goes. But it's definitely sort of a, a a new field when it comes to all of that, and and we're in sort of a, a hazy area when it comes to therapeutic application versus um, like a social group that you go to. It's sort of a weird space as far as insurance is concerned. Yeah, there's not a lot of research out there that shows the evidence-based practice of a therapeutic role-playing game yet. Yeah. And have, have, you <laughs> so, thought of, have you thought about trying to collect some data on that to just like in terms of when a, when a child starts and then maybe six months later or six weeks, however long these groups go to see how they're doing on the back end? Yeah, we actually we haven't done an official sort of um, uh, assessment in the in the context of something that's that's uh, something we we could replicate um, on a massive scale. We had we did have we were approached by uh, a student who was working on uh, their thesis and did some intake outtake uh, over the course of a quarter. I think there was an, an intake at the beginning and then a, a midway and then an end, um, mostly survey data. And it was, you know, it was an undergrad thesis, so it wasn't the kind of thing we could immediately publish. We'd need to do a little bit more with it, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're seeing good results. It's, it's just the, the five groups a week as this has been up to this point, been like a job I was doing in addition to being a full-time classroom teacher and Adam was doing in, uh, on top of having a full caseload of clients. So doing like the extra stuff other than planning and running groups and advertising and sending invoices and all the other stuff that goes with running a business um, has been hard to do that kind of stuff. So that's sort of the next step. That's where we're headed yeah. um, is doing that kind of research or and or finding the person who uh, <laughs> wants to do that and has a passion passion for research. And we love to have that person join our team and <laughs> and help push that forward because there is there is definitely 
bucket loads of anecdotal evidence for the benefits of role-playing game and a lot of like analog uh, research that's been done. Narrative play has amazing benefits in, in uh, delay of gratification and things like that. Mm-hmm. So we know we know that there's a lot of uh, benefits to what we're doing. It's just not in a way that is point A to point B kind of research. Sure, and I'm just thinking of when back many years ago when I was a graduate student, I was <clears throat> if I knew of something like this going on, I would have been really interested in trying to collaborate and do some type of research. So I think you kind of have a good idea there, maybe collaborating with some of the local universities or colleges, maybe finding if you can uh, see a student that has some interest in this and collaborating there, that'd be um, a potential way to go with it. Yeah, if any of the listeners out there are in the Seattle area and want to help us out with that, we'd be more than happy to collaborate. Yeah. One of the things that is really interesting to me about your approach is that I've watched you uh, give a talk. I think uh, you posted on your, your website a recording from PAX uh, fairly recently, and you kind of break down your model of how to use role-playing games for – uh, for good, for trying to teach some social skills. And you break it down into four different aspects of one is this idea of perspective taking or empathy. Two is kind of the importance of learning frustration tolerance. Three is creative problem solving. And four is cooperation or teamwork. And not to go in all, into all those at once, but what has it been like kind of focusing on those things with adolescents and what has been the most interesting thing that you find working with that population? Um, I'm, I mean, I guess a, a big part of it is, um, and, and part of the reason that we use role-playing games is that they really lend to being able to do all of those skills really well. Um, they're, they're sort of set up in such a way that, that those skills are are easy to jump into and they're easy to, to um, use with the game if you know what you're doing and if you're, if you're really being intentional in that direction. The population that we work with has challenge in all of those areas. So it's at times can be really, <laughs> really tough. I mean, working on frustration tolerance or working on collaborative skills, uh, the, because we're working on social skill development, um, one important understanding with it is that the kids that are coming into our groups don't have great frustration tolerance. They don't have great ability to collaborate with other people. And a lot of times they come in with their first reaction being to um, insult the other people at the table or to um, rally against what's going on or uh, often attack the other <laughs> the other players at the table. So a lot of times we're working sort of against a lot of um, really ingrained um, social behaviors that are not serving them very well. But what's really nice about the, the structure of the role-playing game is that when someone comes in with these social skills challenges or social skills deficits, we can frame the acquisition of social skills, these kinds of skills that you just mentioned, as being related to being a good player. So they, the rewards are immediately in front of them when they are a, a pro-social party member in the D&D group. So they can really feel this sort of uh, internal reward for being – a, a collaborator or the internal internal reward for getting a lot farther in the plot when we're not spending time shooting arrows at each other um, and things like that. So it's a really, it's a really um, amazing structure for that because we can sort of teach those social skills by analog, um, like keep them hidden within the game of today we're going to work on teamwork and here in, in being a good team member, we, we don't talk over each other and we, we listen when other people have suggestions or we figure out ways to take turns because 
in the game, we get a lot more accomplished when we do that. And then it's just a matter of taking those skills and then translating them instead of trying to teach the reason why they should have social skills. Because a lot of the players that come to us have been in other social skills groups and or, or a school-based social skills group where they sit in a, in a circle and somebody tells them why it's important for them to be pro-social, but there's not – there's not the sense of reward that comes with being social because for a lot of the kids that come to, into our groups, being social didn't have any rewards. There wasn't anything positive about being with other people. So they never wanted to practice their skills and social skills like any, any other sort of skill, whether it be in a role playing game or in anywhere else, it requires practice and it requires it to be ideally at least kind of fun um, for you to want to keep doing it. So this, the role playing game itself provides a way for us to provide an in, a, inherently rewarding structure for the skills that they need to be able to translate into their real life. It's interesting. You're talking about doing things as a DM very intentionally, and you're combining sort of elements of the game with this behavioral approach. And really, I find a lot of being a dungeon master is shaping behavior. And a lot of it is me wanting to shape behaviors to run good games. But this is for, you know, maybe a group of like 30 to 40 something year old adults. And mm -hmm. I think these skills would be just as applicable to some of the adults I work with. Um, just yeah, you know, absolutely. playing the game. I think that's a little bit of an elephant in the room that I'd be curious to talk about. But even game systems, I think, have have a way to do this. So the most recent edition of, of Dungeons and Dragons, fifth edition, has this idea of inspiration. So if somebody at the table, if one of the players does something cool or really creative, then you give that player inspiration and they have advantage on their next role. It's, it's mm -hmm. very much a positive reinforcement for whatever that person just did. You're reinforcing that behavior for that player and for other players to do similar things. Yeah, and, and there's there's a lot of those great sort of behavioral ways to, to reward behaviors for sure. Um, but one thing that we've been really striving in, when we talk about this is to make sure we don't assume that what we're doing is sort of like a gamification of social skills where we give like token economies for eye contact or anything like that because one of the main things we're working on with these kids is providing them a place where they get the rewards of being social. So I don't want to I don't want to replace the social rewards with in-game rewards any more than I have to in order to prompt behaviors, but once the behaviors are starting to happen, I'm I I would hope that and this is what we see in our groups is that once they start being social with each other, they start to look forward to social time, which is something that most of these kids have never experienced, actually looking forward to getting out of the house or looking forward to coming and, and doing sort of a semi-structured activity with other kids. is It's a rare and exciting thing for these kids to, to want to do that, and I would hate to sort of like co-opt that towards, towards a token economy or anything like that. So your your goal is not to put in the, we use a little bit of counseling jargon here, but you're not putting all these kids in a Skinner box and this <laughs> is this is how to run them through a game. And what do you guys want to explain that to the audience? Skinner box. <laughs> sure. so, I mean specifically the idea that um, uh, it, it would be easy within the game to say um, uh, to to prevent against the the behavior of interrupting each other, just something we deal with pretty often in our games, um, to say, if you raise your hand before you speak, you get five XP. And 
very quickly. And if you don't raise your hand before you speak, you lose five XP. And very quickly, we would see a big shift in <laughs> behavior for trying to achieve getting more XP. And so people would raise their hands constantly. We'd be handing out XP for that. But what that creates is is an idea of an extrinsic benefit to why I'm doing this rather than an intrinsic appreciation for trying to make um, socializing itself a more rewarding experience. So when the kid leaves, maybe those skills will will adapt outside of the group. But there's going to be a quick what, what we often like to call like a quick fall off in that behavior uh, within the psychology community to, to say it, it's not going to last uh, because it's not continuing to be reinforced in the same way that it is in group. What we want is an intrinsic view of the appreciation of social skills. So I learn not to interrupt people, not because I get XP for doing it, but because I notice that if I stop interrupting people, we get more done in the group. Um, we get to have a, more fun when we're playing. Um, and by doing that, I find the intrinsic benefits of being social and, and the positive social aspects of that reward. And we will uh, name behaviors and target behaviors just as much as we would if we were giving out token rewards for it. So you you could make the argument that our positive praise is is similar to a to a token reward. It's just not. Um, it we're trying to keep it in the, in the realm of it being a, a pro social reward for a pro social behavior. And I guess it's it's worthwhile to mention we absolutely use the inspiration system because it's a great way to get people to to be to be um, supporting each other to like you know that that moment where I roll a, a one and somebody um, goes oh I have inspiration and, and hands it over to to that player. That's that's a good moment. We definitely want to encourage that. I, I let my players use their inspiration tokens for each other, so that they are forced to kind of figure out when someone else needs a reroll and then offer them an inspiration. And I make them do an in-game, uh, what does your character do to give that person mm -hmm. enough strength to, to push through this challenging situation? Or they're about to miss, but then you say something and it helps them try again. What is the, what is the encouraging thing you would say to them? That's great. That, that seems to offer this, I think ties in that idea of empathy and cooperation. I, I, a lot of these tie in together. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think that's a useful thing to do with any gaming group, not just something where you're trying to teach social skills, but to, to get the players at the table to collaborate more often together rather than just saying like, oh, I have inspiration, so I'm going to do this. Like make it more part of the action, part of the storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think that's a challenge for a lot of DMs. So, and it seems like with these groups and also your experience running games that you feel very comfortable with that collaborative storytelling aspect of role-playing games. And, you know, for a lot of folks listening, I know they're always looking for tips on how to do that, not necessarily because they're trying to make their games therapeutic, but just they want the game to kind of flow better. What have been some methods that you use to, to keep that um, going in a good direction? Um, well, the, there's, there's a couple of big ones. One of them is we find that like having collaborative input into the world and the world building parts of the game go a long, long way to getting like player buy-in, um, and buy-in on the, on the idea of what, um, what you're trying to pursue as your character or what's going on in the world. So we'll do things like, um, there's an improv game where you create a word one letter at a time. So everybody goes around the table and you create a word together. Um, and oh, I guess we could, we could do that right now. Let's do that as we're dropping stuff all over <laughs> the place. <laughs> um, Michael, why don't you give me a letter? Give you a letter. Okay. Um, I'll go with B as in boy. Adam, go ahead and give me a letter. R. 
And what we're doing right now, just to clarify, is we're going to name a town. And we're going to create some backstory to this town. Um, so I'm going to add a letter. And then, Michael, go ahead and give me another one. Do I know your letter, or are you just going to keep that secret from me? I'm going to, I'm going to keep that secret from you in this case. Ah, oh, man. I'm going to throw in a vowel anywhere. I'm going to – oh. L. Our, our, all right. Our word is brailt. It's, it's spelled <laughs> B-R-A-O-L-T. Um, so the town of Brailt um, is an interesting town. We traveled here, and this town has a couple of unique qualities. In fact, there's a festival going on in this town. Um, Michael, what is this festival celebrating? It is celebrating the winter harvest. Oh, the winter harvest, a great thing to celebrate this time of year. Um, spectacular. And Adam, what do they do to celebrate the winter harvest? And they do something really unique in this town to celebrate the winter harvest. Yeah, they take pumpkins and they carve out the stuff and then they wear them on their heads. They wear the pumpkins on their heads. Yeah. That's perfect. Do they carve out like eye holes? No, it's like a helmet. It's like a helmet. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they carve out. This like is a, what we do in like Minnesota. You're not making this up. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually just the yeah. Minnesota tradition. No, I'm just joking. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Um, and Michael, they also serve uh, a really unique food here. Um, something that seems kind of out of place for a winter harvest, um, but they, it's part of the tradition of this place. Uh, what is the food that they serve? They serve. We'll go with frog legs. Frog legs. <laughs> mm, winter frog legs. Winter delicious winter <laughs> frog legs. And so now we have this place, Brailt, and Brailt has all these interesting qualities. And maybe the plotline that we're pursuing already has, you know, maybe we already have some stuff planned and some things that are that are going to happen in this town of Brailt. There's somebody that the players are going to meet. There's a there's a problem that we know that's going on. But now we get to put it in the context of all of this great stuff that we created. So now this world gets to be collaborative without having to necessarily like throw us as dungeon masters way way off track from the plotline that we're trying to create. Um, and then the players feel really validated for being able to be in this world that, you know, as you're walking around, you're seeing frog leg stands everywhere and you see people wearing wearing pumpkin helmets. Do you want to buy a pumpkin helmet? Yeah, it also gives, the, <laughs> gives the, the players a challenge. You go in and you see everybody's wearing these pumpkin hats and now we have to have an NPC interaction in order to acquire a pumpkin hat. Right. Now we have all the players describe what kind of pumpkin hat they have on. Um, there's all sorts of, like, opportunity that we create within that for the players to have interaction in this world. And so how far do you take that? There's an article I wrote on my blog a few months ago about this improvisation and players contributing to the world and maybe even each other's character. And so how do you set limits with maybe even with some of these children who might be making up things for another player's character, which maybe that player doesn't necessarily agree with? Or like, how do you set boundaries in that regard? I think it would depend on the players themselves because that's a, a big part of, of setting these boundaries is knowing what the intent is of doing that. Um, if a player is is trying to create something for another character as a as a as they don't have the personal boundaries to know that that's not something that's wanted from them, then we might encourage them to think about how they're overstepping their bounds as a player. Um, if they're so excited about connecting with another player that they make a suggestion to them because they want some sort of like connection with the player. Oh, we used to be in magic school together or something like that might be um, an invitation. And so we might, depending on the circumstances of the player, talk to the other player and say, hey, he, he thinks, you know, it'd be fun if you guys went to magic school together. What do you think about that? And let the player 
of the other players. Yeah, the other player respond to that and, and assert their own boundaries if necessary. But we really take it on a case-by-case basis. But when Adam sure, was setting sure. this up, for you, he asked you a lot of very open-ended questions like what is the winter or what is the food? And some players uh, in our groups might not be able to handle that open-ended of a question. So it might be something like, does this festival happen once a year or every couple of years? And then the player might say something like, every couple of years. And then you could say, okay, how many years? And then they'd say, well, it's once every 10 years. And so there's like a scaffolding of of open-ended versus closed questions that's a really way good way for players to feel like they're contributing without the pressure of the sort of like open-ended improv of it, which we always hope that that's our our end goal is always to have players feeling comfortable enough to throw out suggestions like pumpkin heads or whatever it might be. Uh, uh, part of the other part, a uh, big piece of this is that we make it very clear with the players, um, especially when they are playing around with where the boundaries are on what they can create in the world, that nothing is true unless the dungeon master says it's true. Um, so it gives us a lot of opportunity, um, especially in some of our younger player groups. We notice that um, they'll do things like try to create things or try to put things on other players. And and sometimes that will cause the other player to become very really anxious or really uh, upset. Like, that's not true. That's not what my character did. That's not what I said. That's yeah. not my background. Yeah. Um, and, and so we make it very clear in those moments, um, nothing that's said by the other players is true until the dungeon master says it's true. So they can say all sorts of stuff, and you don't have to worry about it. Because it's not going to be true until until I, as the dungeon master, tell you, yes, that's what's going on. And if they try to create things with other players, it's clear that it's not an invitation, but it's more of a, a forceful world building. Um, then we'll make that clear for, for both the players. Like, you, you can create things for your own background, but but uh, that, that player gets the opportunity to do the same thing for themselves. It is also a certain skill to be able to take the things that they're saying and shape them and make them fit into the world a little bit. Like we were creating a city that was had their annual festival they were having. So we've used that uh, question before was Tarask Fest. Oh, yeah. And there was a Tarask in the middle of town. And that was part of the thing that the kids said. So we turned it into like a big puppet of a Tarask. And they celebrate this like ancient story of, of the seven years it took to defeat a Tarask or something like that. So we can take what they're saying is a Tarask in the middle of town, in the middle of Tarask Fest, and turn that into a giant like multi-person puppet that was being used. Um, so there's there's definitely ways to say yes and to them uh, in, a, in a way that's that's – supporting their idea and sort of translating it into the world that we're in. So the world does, does have boundaries. You can't just say there's a Tarrasque in the middle of this town we're about to walk into, um, but while still letting them feel like they are contributing. Because we have, you know, they say there's a lot of players who will be very resistant to what the Game Master wants them to do, um, certainly in our in our demographic. And what we have found is if we can hand the reins over of storytelling in little pieces in other ways – then they're much more um, willing to sort of uh, go along with the flow to, to to work as a team if they're not feeling like their need to be in control is um, being taken away from them. So we, we try to like in, in encourage them to contribute in a way that lets them not have that sort of um, uh, fear or anxiety when they're playing the regular game later on. Yeah, and you're talking about fear and anxiety, and that's kind of exactly what I was thinking about is this idea of exposure. So – the more these children, the more they expose themselves to being around other people, to voicing their opinion, to giving out their ideas, the more comfortable in theory they become with doing these things. So how do you see the life of a group 
that one of these groups that you run, how does it develop over time? Does it kind of follow the normal stages of group development, or do you see variations in that? We definitely see some of the like storming, norming, forming stages of, <laughs> of group development um, okay. that, that sometimes can be really tough to deal with. There, these are definitely um, players that um, can sometimes have trouble trouble finding safety in this, and and their go tos for uh, behavior and, and interaction when they can't find safety in the in the space is is to be more interrupting or to pull back more and be more shy. They basically fall back on their on their old habits. So um, that's actually one of the reasons why we really make it clear with parents that attendance to groups is very very necessary. We see huge disruptions sometimes. Uh, we see huge disruptions sometimes if we um, are not getting that uh, that consistent group group attendance. Not just for the player who can't make it consistently, but the, but for the whole group as as a whole. They just wind up in that storming phase for a long time. Um, we also see kind of an interesting progress for new players. Um, a lot of the players that come to our groups are uh, brand new, have never played any RPGs before, um, often in like the early teen years, like 12 to 14. And um, one of the things we see this interesting progress of the first day is always just tremendous excitement. What is this thing? There's so much here. I can do anything I want. This is amazing. Um, and then the next couple of days are excitement mixed with learning the boundaries of this because it turns out that you can't do everything that you want to do right i can't i can't i can't just say um cool now i'm riding a dragon and i'll go like nope you're not right you're not riding a dragon. <laughs> I walk into a store and it's just a, a store full of free magical weapons yeah. <laughs> they, 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 they look free because they don't have price tags but <laughs> but you talk to the shop owner and he's very very stingy so uh, there's there's definitely a, a feeling of like they have to learn the boundaries of that space. Um, and so we notice usually by session, we usually probably session three or four, um, that we see sort of a dip in the excitement of the game. They're really, really excited at the start. And then there's sort of a dip where they start to realize like, oh, there's, there's sort of like boundaries to this world. And part of that is curated by us because yeah. we want them to sort of experience the joy of just like narrative free play. So we'll let them do a lot of stuff. Our NPCs will be a lot sillier and a lot more like, um, friendly because our, our players will want to do stuff like a punch him in the face. And, uh, you know, I, I, as the NPC will be like, you can't punch me in the face. Well, why'd you say that to me? Yeah. What are you, what are you talking about? Um, and, uh, it's like, there aren't really those kinds of consequences at the very beginning because we want the players to like feel the safe experimentation with throwing out their ideas. And then after a while, as we start to rein in the boundaries a little bit more, it becomes a little more frustrating for them sometimes because they want to do stuff, um, climb over walls that are not climbable or punch through doors that are just not punch throughable that we might have let them get away with early because we wanted them to experience the the rewards of being creative. And then after a while, we want them to sort of shift that into what it means to adapt when your first solution isn't successful. How do you reevaluate that situation, come up with a new solution to that problem. And this is actually gets into what you had sort of mentioned before about frustration tolerance, um, where really the way that you build frustration tolerance is that you, you come up against frustration um, and you do it in such a way that you are able to be successful in overcoming that frustration. And then the next time that you come up against it, you know, you have some skills for being able to handle frustration. So uh, as a part of that, we will very purposefully make, put things in our game that make make our players frustrated <laughs> which is sometimes you know right around that three to four session mark is when we start putting in 
okay, now, now you have to meet with some hurdles that you have to overcome. And that's by overcoming those, you're going to, you're going to overall feel a lot better about, about your, um, how you're doing in this game. You're going to feel challenged, which is good. Something I, as you were talking about that, I wonder how, what is it like to watch these groups deal with failure or how do you even handle failure if in, in these groups, whether a character dies or they're not able to achieve a goal in an exact way, is there a lot of uh, no end? Like, how do you usually handle that? Failure is something that's largely um, up to our control as the game master. And there's definitely times where failure is therapeutically beneficial and times where it is not. And we will be very intentional about letting that happen. I mean, the game is is the game exists, but really it's it's us who are playing it that make it what it is. So I, as the game master, have every power to change something if it's if it's going that way. I can have, oh, you found a trap door, you get away from the monster that's about to kill you. Whatever it is, I can I can make that happen. So I will be very selective about when I would ever let a player die. Um, and if, you know, I, I would make sure that they understood the consequences of their actions in a way before I would ever let that happen. In fact, I don't think I've ever had a player die in any of my games except for once when he was leaving the group for an extended period of time and he wanted to make a new character anyway and I had his character like hold the the tunnel up while the rest of the characters escaped and it fell down in a dramatic finale um, but other than that players don't players don't tend to die we'll, we'll see failure in in smaller ways I want to punch through this door no you're not successful in that okay but the big failures like having a character die or like having a um, uh, uh, some, something really permanent and devastating happen to your character um, are ones that we want to be mo- most specifically we want to think about are the consequences to this failure going to be that this player then stops taking risks because we want we want them to take risks we want them to feel safety in, in being able to take those risks and so um, the question always becomes that there is absolutely benefits to having a player die due to the consequences of the choices that they made. But we want to make sure that the, that the benefits of that outweigh the, the risk of this player might shut down and might not be willing to engage as much once that happens. Mm-hmm. And we, we've had lots of conversations with other game masters around how that essentially is breaking the game. That if the players know that I am going to be tweaking things to prevent them from experiencing consequences then it's not really a game and i'm i'm in too much control i we had a a long conversation with the angry gm about this um at the save against fear last year and um you know it's 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 a different game the way we're playing it than it is if we were just playing at a con or playing at a delve um it is really important and and players will push it if if players feel like they don't have any consequences they'll take bigger risks and then we'll let them fail because that's where the, that's what's important for them. But if somebody takes their first big risk and I punish it with death, that's a pretty big, <laughs> you know, that's a that's, that's a, a pretty, pretty big, big deterrent. Speaking yeah. of exactly reinforcement, exactly, punishment. yeah. So we we like to. I mean, it it is a game. Like I said, it's a story game. The way that we play it more than it's a it's a tactical uh, war game. So it's important that we let our characters continue, and they might experience consequences. Uh, Adam had some players who were being very reckless with their 
they're killing people or whatever it was. I don't remember exactly. Very much murder. They were, (laughs) they were going a little nuts. And, um, so instead of having them just die, because that's not a good consequence because it ends the story. Um, he had their, their players all end up in jail. And then that is where the the conversation or the, the storyline went was your actions do have real life consequences, but the story continues. Mm -hmm. So it's important that they feel like their characters are actually having an impact on the world. And that's sort of why we see some players want to go full sandbox mode, full GTA, because they want to know that they have their actions have consequences. And that's the kind of thing that 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 group did. But that's a group of, of, you know, adults basically um, working on this, which is different than my group of 11 year olds. I wouldn't necessarily do that. (laughs) Well, and it seems like you can change the emphasis of these groups. And like if you do have a few players or. You know, I can imagine all kinds of interesting dynamics where if you had one player where in a group who most people are maybe reserved and somewhat shy and someone else is rather reckless and challenging everyone's boundaries, like it might be useful to have that person deal with some in-game or you know even out-of-game consequences for that behavior. It sounds like you're – that's what you try to balance all the time. Yeah, and also there's a lot of great uh, social consequences that you can experience when you have reckless behavior overstepping bounds. You can see the consequences of those behavior in the game and also in your like new colleagues and new almost maybe friends, you can sort of see the consequences of it there too, which is another really important immediate feedback for players who want to like so you're having an NPC interaction with someone and it's very clear by the boundaries set up that you need to negotiate something. And if a player gives up on the negotiation and wants to pick a fight with that person, the rest of the players are going to kind of immediately give their frustration with someone going rogue, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, content. it's interesting that, that, um, the example that you gave actually was something that came up in one of our games. Okay. Um, where, uh, there was this particular trap where there were sort of, three levers that um, pulled in the right combination would let this um, troll free, who was clearly more powerful than the rest of the party. Um, and one of the players who had created, who, who was um, impulsive and who was uh, um, had a lot of difficulty with impulse control and who had made a character who had exactly those same challenges. And like very explicitly, my character has problems <laughs> with impulse control. Um, and, the character, the play, the player, as soon as they walked into the room, said, uh, I described everything that was going on in the room. And the, the player said, my character goes over and throws all, all three switches. Uh, <laughs> and so there's this, there's this sort of moment where, you know, we have and to deal with the opportunity for consequences. Adam made it very clear that this troll will not only kill you, but be freed upon the land and like eat villages and <laughs> it will, it will be death and destruction to the entire we'll kill country. You, <laughs> your friends, your family, everybody like, else you know. Yeah, I was watching this session it was like very clear and explicit this troll cannot be set free it's like this is a nuclear bomb you're going to push explode on if you flip these levers in the wrong combination he ran over there and just flipped them all as fast as he could um which uh of course so uh, the rest of the players in the party they were ready to like try to figure out this puzzle and like ready to, to jump in and oh okay we got certain switches and we got to figure out how to do this and that's clearly we don't want to let this guy free um, and so there was this moment I, I let the player go and throw all the switches and the troll got free. And now the players now had a brand new problem that they had to solve. And they now had to deal with what do we do with this character? 
Um, and this is where like there's there's a lot of good opportunity to like put that onus on the character rather than on the player. So we we gave you know I, I made that very explicit. If if your characters are angry at this character, that is understandable because of the choices that character made. Um, but but how would your characters handle that now? Now you have to deal with this troll. So let's look at that and then to find the consequences afterwards for what will your characters do with this with this other character you're going to say like that was really dumb you can't do that don't you know don't do that next time and it eventually at the end of the session they basically did come to that place where the the impulsive player um said that they their character really appreciated and really needs help handling their impulse control and wanted to ask for that help from the other characters in the group so there was this great moment where they all had sort of recognition that maybe that impulsive behavior um which has maybe been funny in the past was destructive here and so there's clearly a line that they need to make sure not to cross and you you kind of touched on this with how that player created their character you know how much do you read into the type of character each player creates do you tend to see where it's a a parallel of some of the things they're working with or does it sometimes take on the opposite flavor of someone who's maybe reserved is like maybe this dashing hero who's over the top or like what's most common in these groups. There's, there's always reasons why players pick characters. And I mean, this is true for, for casual players as well. I I talk about my, my player history, my character history. Um, I was a fat kid who got bullied a lot for my size. And so when I would play D and D as a 10 year old, I'd always pick like a monk ninja style character who could jump off walls and talk smooth if he had to, but he could disappear at will. Um, and I think most people choose characters for a reason. And, it's especially true um, when you have a therapeutic game master sort of helping talk about the reasons why you're choosing characters. A lot of that happens too. Um, we'll have a lot of players who are kind of shy people in their real life pick bards or or talkative rogues or people who are very powerful and can make strong choices, wizards who can, can change the structure of reality around them when in real life they are, uh, you know, have trouble self-advocating and things like that. There's almost always pretty clear lines drawn between the person and their, and their character. We see, uh, we definitely have the sort of philosophy that um, every time you get an opportunity to make a decision about your character, you get to put a little piece of yourself into that. And sometimes that is, um, I want to explore something I don't have. Um, a, you know, a shy kid who wants to play a character who is boisterous and loud. Um, or sometimes it is, uh, I want to explore something that I have, but I want to see what it's like to have even more of that. Um, which is like, um, somebody who takes, demands a lot of, um, attention from the room who also plays like a boisterous, loud character in, in sort of in the example that I, I gave earlier. And those, those areas, um, are sort of the the big ones. But every time I make even small decisions about my characters, I get opportunity to sort of put pieces of myself into it. So um, one of our pieces as new players, especially new to D&D, are making characters. We ask them for backstory. We have pre-made characters for them so that mechanically they can jump right into the game. But we get them to make some backstory for the character. And one of the things that we ask is, do they come from a big city or a small town? So again, we're sort of breaking it down to to small questions and, and like yes or no, some pick, pick one of the two exactly yeah. um uh, and then and then give them some open-ended you know what what is your town well known for some open-ended questions for them to be able to explore and every one of those little questions that they answer gives them opportunity to to 
put little pieces into their character. And then we want to emphasize that and keep building on that idea. Even if the character we had, we had a player who made their character was Nick Cage. And so (laughs) so it's just like entirely based off of like Nick Cage tropes and Nick Cage uh, ideas. That sounds amazing. It was, it was pretty incredible. So (laughs) it was, but, but he picked Nick Cage over John Travolta. And so we, we can, we can look at, at, if nothing else, that, idea why you know why nick cage what was it about about that that really appealed to you over some other things sure he's the one true god but (laughs) but what can you do you know with with the knowledge that you made that decision over over something else and so what, what i wonder when you guys are you know running groups like how much of yourself comes into how you like role play like npcs or even just run the game how much of that channels through Oh man, it's, so that is a deep question. That, yeah, that is what we do. I mean, <laughs> um, we we are the the game masters, and we take it. I mean, we we plan for every group, and we obviously uh, create the in-game scenarios for the for the players. But there's definitely times when it goes off track, and we just improvise our way back to where we want it to be. I mean, we've had some of the best discoveries and, and mo- moments in our groups were moments that were purely accidental, um, that were based on improv. Um, and you know, we've had players who have been in Adam's group and in my group, and one of them told me the other day that he was commenting about the difference in Adam and I as, as GMs. I'm a little bit sillier than Adam is, um, <laughs> apparently. Yeah. Um, I like my NPCs to have funny names and silly voices, and that's why I tend to work with the 11-year-olds and 12-year-olds instead of the 18-year-olds, because <laughs> the 18-year-olds don't like my silly voices and funny names as much as the 11-year-olds do. We had this amazing moment with uh, the 18-year-old group when Adam was DMing for them where he was like um, – they had to go across like a, a lake of lava and there were like these particular ferrymen that, that, that would help ferry them across the lake of lava. So this was, a, this was a city that was created in just like the world-building thing we did earlier. It was the sure. city – they called it Warsaw. It was a floating island city above a lake of lava that was uh, created in an ancient magic battle and – this is the like the leftovers of this magic battle. There's a lake of lava you have to cross and then take a, a floating air balloon up to the – it was a really cool city. And so they wanted to get over there to this to, – to the ferryman who was going to take them over to the hot air balloon to fly up into the city. And I was just improvising and I said, you know, the ferryman has like this giant handlebar mustache and he's wearing a tri-corner hat. And he has his his face is like and so what what I do as a game master sometimes when I'm trying to think of stuff is I just start describing until I like know what I'm gonna do next and so I was in describing mode where I was like he's got a handlebar mustache and he's wearing a tri corner hat and he's wearing pantaloons and he's got uh, his face is painted white and they go we kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, what? Why? We just kill him. We're tired of your silly NPCs. We kill him. And then I was like, okay, well, he's dead. And then another one comes around the corner and he has an even bigger mustache. And he says, what did you do to my friend? And they killed him too. And eventually there was like a stack of five of these uh, ferrymen. And then finally a very normal ferryman came around the corner and said, hey, guys, do you want to go to the city? (laughs) 
Nice. Okay, you can get on my boat, and I will take you there. So I think that's, that's it. You that's the player shaping your behavior. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, they, they, that's fine. <laughs> it's on the other hand, though. It's it's like it's really important that the game masters are having fun. So it's a it's a, a an important part of what we do in modeling what it's like to play mm-hmm. is both me making sure that I am as the game master like engaged in a dynamic uh, activity and sure like I, my my role-playing habit is to get a little silly and have have accents and things like that and it's important for them to be able to assert what they want we actually have a checkout question at the end of at the end of every day where i ask them what a highlight is for the day um, and or a spotlight on somebody else if somebody else did something awesome but also what's something you wish had gone better or been different about the session and so they might be say something like i wish I wish I'd rolled higher when I was trying to overcome that obstacle or um, I wish we'd uh, worked together better. I mean, sometimes they say, you know what, I, I really, you know, I, I don't want this part of, of uh, this element in the story. I'm, I'm tired of werewolves or whatever it is. Um, they can tell me that and that feedback is really important and I need to show them that it's safe for them to give me feedback as a game master. As I mean, sometimes I'm going to tell them that it's important for the kind of work we're doing that I still do the kinds of things that I'm doing. And they say, we want to kill more things and talk to less people. I'll say, well, it's not really how this works, but um, you know, there's definitely times where I need to be humble and, and, and hear their, their feedback if it's going to get in the way of them having a good time. So that group doesn't like my silly voices and try corner hats. Then that, you know, I'm not going to make those NPCs for them anymore. Yeah. But, and you're also modeling, you know, receiving feedback, taking that, not getting confrontational and escalating things. So that, right. that sounds like it's definitely a good approach. What, one thing I was curious about, I, I think all uh, GMs or, or DMs run into this is, you know, we all have like real life stressors, you know, life comes at you pretty quickly and to put all that on hold and then focus, funnel all your attention into running a game even that can be sometimes stressful. So I imagine if you know you're working with patients each day, or you have other things going on in your life, and then you have to go into a room and deal with, you know, whether it's a table full of 11-year-olds or maybe some 18-year-olds uh, with a variety of, of challenging concerns. Like, how do you process that, either before and after? Like, how do you deal with that additional stress that you guys are taking on? Um, I mean, there's definitely. Yeah, like being a therapist, there's sort of a, a part of us that wants to, okay, maybe there's some stuff going on in my life. I want to set that aside a little bit because I want to serve what's best for the clients in this particular case. But like you said, being a dungeon master is, is a lot of bringing your own personal self into into this game, and you're playing the game with everybody else. You're there playing because of that. You're going to bring in parts of you, and you're going to bring in um, bits of what you have in your life. So one of the things that we will occasionally do is we'll fold down the dm screen and say guys there's a lot of interrupting going on right now um it's making it really tough to get to the story i wonder if there's something that we can do to help bring down some of the interruptions or um i've definitely had days where i i walk into the group and say um hey guys i've had kind of a rough day today um and it's been it's been kind of rough in other ways i want to really make sure that we're having a fun time today so is there something that we could do today that would help everybody have a, an extra fun time um, and kind of put it out there just like with any sort of processing group to say it, it's okay to, to say some days are harder than others um, and what can I do to make sure that I'm both having a good time but also 
building the skills that I want to build as I as I walk into the group and Adam and I will definitely model that by coming in with that um, on on days when it's it has gotten really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that sounds a good idea. Do you have like specific exercises you do with with your groups when that comes into play, or you leave it more open ended to see what ideas come up from the the players? I'll do. Um, most mostly we keep it more open ended. Uh, we've definitely have times where we will do like little warm up episode, uh, little warm up games or things like that. We'll steal some stuff from um, Adam's done a lot of improv work, um, and we'll steal some stuff from that to help people get a little warm, more warmed up into the game or or things like that. Stuff like one word at a time stories or opportunities to to like do a little fun world building um even if we're we're not necessarily using it in this in this one instance things like that that really help get into the game i I will say there's sort of a reality to playing this game is fun uh we have a great time doing this this is our job but we really enjoy coming in and so most of the time when the group gets started and especially when we're we're all having a good time i'm i'm there having a good time too um, so even when there's other frustrating things going on in my life, um, if the group has good energy, if we're role playing, if we're if we're like having a really good time describing how I slay the beast in front of me, I'm I'm there with them. I'm I'm having a great time too, and it's it becomes much much easier to push aside some of those things that go on in your life. I think in five years of doing this, I really only had like four days that I that really felt like work. Okay. Um, I mean, there's definitely times where I'm sitting on my computer sending out invoices and things like that that aren't particularly <laughs> exciting. Um, but days when I'm running groups, I mean, it's a 90-minute session. We run five of them a week. And it's, um, you, you know, it, it's it's really fun. It's, it is a, it is a, a dynamic. Every day is obviously different, even when you're recycling elements from, from different curriculum. Um, it's every day has to be different because the players are all different. So... Um, and my energy is different because I've had different days. I mean, there's no there's no doubt that uh, being a professional game master is one of the best jobs I've ever had, the best job I've ever had. Um, sure, be, being a teacher. <laughs> <laughs> what are some of the really fun or really rewarding success stories that you've had of uh, people who have come through the group and kind of taken like real world benefits? Sure. What type of um, feedback have you gotten? We so. We're sort of at a little bit of a limit to talk about specifics because of because of our, our confidentiality. But we Certainly. I had um, a player who uh, came into my groups because their sibling was in my group, and I invited them to come to the group largely because I saw them sitting in the in the lobby, and I just figured they could come back and play instead of uh, waiting in the lobby while their sibling was in my group. And so I, I invited them back to play and then sort of, you know, taught them how to play a little bit and got them into the game and then found out afterwards that that this particular player and their sibling didn't get along at all. They didn't speak to each other. They would almost exclusively fight. And and that through the game, they've been coming to our groups now for, for over a year, and through the game they're actually – friends again and they're working together at home um that that particular player was told um uh, that particular player and and their parent was told that they would need years of psychotherapy before they could ever function in in a social skills group they had they had never had any success in a social skills group and then in coming to play role-playing games in our social skills group they were they're now going out and making friends and and 
reaching out to people and taking social risks. And it's been amazing to watch this group of siblings um, experience the sort of benefits of, of playing together and watching that happen and seeing them in the game support each other and use their inspiration tokens. And, and one of them is a bard and, and, and that player will always choose to, to play their bardic inspiration, to give it to their sibling. And it's just a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful thing. And, you know, the, the family is very um, uh, vocal about the kinds of successes that they're having at home. And that's one of my favorite success stories. We just, we just heard the specifics of that um, story from a parent uh, just a, a couple of weeks ago. And it still touches me deeply. Yeah, it's we, wonderful. Congratulations. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. We, also, we also see a lot of, like, um, smaller levels of success. People uh, who – parents who report to us that they, their teenager is, like, coming down and talking during dinner and um, who is, uh, like, going going out and being able to, like, go out and do chores or go on errands with a parent um, or, or even being able to make friends. And one of the things that we really want to encourage, actually, is playing D&D outside of our groups. Um, so going going to like a game store, most of the kids that we have in our groups have too much anxiety, have too much um, that's going on or, or too much um, difficulty in socializing to be able to actually go to their local game store and play play in a game of D&D. Um, and so we do a lot of you know, encouraging when they're ready to, to to go out and form a group with their own friends or their own schoolmates and or or go to a game store and, and join a group there. So. We see a lot of successes on those levels as well, just in, in small ways that we get reports from, from parents or from teachers. And how much thought have you given to expanding this to older uh, individuals, so folks in college age or even beyond? Uh, we're more than more than excited about expanding. Uh, right now we are sort of at the, at the limit as far as in, before we can hire anybody else as far as the number of groups we can plan and implement on top of doing the other business stuff that we have to do as a wheelhouse workshop. Mm -hmm. So um, we've definitely had contact with other organizations, maybe run daytime groups at um, residential facilities or things like that. Um, but there is a lot to be said for like college aged uh, emerging adulthood and the importance of like maintaining a, a a positive social outlook that we've definitely thought about it. It's just a matter of um, making those connections with the with the resources that we have. We also really believe that like the model that we're working from is it's um, independent of the game that we're playing. It can be used for Dungeons and Dragons or it can be used for Dungeon World. In fact, we have a No Thank You Evil group that we're running right now. Um, and and it's also I feel like very, would be easily adaptable to depression or anxiety or um, even PTSD um, with the right training and with, with with the right sort of adaptations. We're excited for the possibility going forward, and I don't I can't say when exactly this is going to be, but for being able to start groups that have a, a focus in a different direction. Uh, you know, I would I would love to see somebody take this model and use it with veterans and PTSD or, or use it with um, social anxiety disorder. Um, and obviously there's some, some crossover in what we do, but, but I think that it could go in so many other directions and we, we would love to see that, that happen. Yeah. Do you collaborate with other mental health providers in the community where you mentioned like assessment isn't part of the group, but where maybe another psychologist or another mental health provider, you know, is, providing ongoing therapy and then refers um, to this program as kind of an adjunct to that treatment. Does that sort of thing happen? Um, yes, quite a bit. Um, okay. I, I see I see some of our, our wheelhouse 
clients in private practice as well, which gives okay. a lot of great opportunity to, to be able to talk about like, what did your character do in the last session and how, how does that relate to you? And, and let's, let's draw some clear lines between the two, but we'll also, we're, we're always open to collaborating with teachers or with therapists. And we're always encouraging that this is a good, um, a group to go along with therapy. It is not a replacement to therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's still so many benefits that individual therapy can give, um, to, to a client, but, but being able to attend the group and go to individual therapy gives, gives sort of that added benefit. So we definitely want to see both sides of that and, and collaborate as much as we can. It, it is tough to find therapists that are on board with how role playing games work and can uh, understand how to best incorporate that into their therapeutic practice. But mm-hmm. we do, we do occasionally get, get lucky on, on having a therapist who can jump on top of that. I imagine. And kind of winding down, one of the things I, maybe last things to touch on is, you're straddling two worlds, sort of the role-playing game, tabletop role-playing game community, and then the mental health community, which really is not – if there's a Venn diagram there, it doesn't <laughs> naturally overlap, and you're trying to straddle that that line. What has the feedback been like from both communities about what you're trying to do? Once we get a chance to talk to people about it, normally face-to-face, it's very supportive. Uh, pretty much everybody we've we've spoken with – um, has been supportive at the very beginning. They weren't, um, always, you know, when we were, when we were first starting out, we weren't really sure how to talk to people about the kind of work we're doing. Um, we hadn't really figured out an elevator pitch, so to speak. Um, so we'd talk to, you know, a principal or a teacher and, and really just drop the ball with them. Cause we just got so excited and we wanted to tell them everything that we were doing without really trying to, you know, uh, attune to what their needs were. But over time, uh, you know, we've spoken now at PAX a couple of times and, and, comic conventions and things like that to large groups of, of people in the geek community and really, really positive responses from people in the geek community. I think we, we touch on, like we mentioned in that video that you mentioned from our PAX South uh, earlier this year, uh, we talk about how these games are just inherently good for you and we can kind of reflect back on, on geeks the way that they've benefited from playing these kinds of games and, and encouraging them to play with this sort of lens of how can I take this to the next level and kind of and play it knowing that I'm working on these kinds of skills. And if I think about myself um, as how can I be a better player and maybe how can my good player self go out into into the world and I can be Adam as a good player while I'm standing in line at the bank, <laughs> you know, um, sure. those kinds of things I think are uh, are are really are really important and really um, they resonate with a lot of the geeks. Um, as far as talking to the mental health people, um, once we learned how to, to translate to, and, and speak things in the language that they needed to hear, we got we started getting a really positive response. Once we realized that, like, I can say NPC and they won't know what that means, um, you know, that right. was a, a learning curve a little bit at the beginning. Adam is better at it than me, but um, we definitely had a, a few conversations with people where they just kind of stared at us funny, um, not really understanding. We're pretty fortunate to be in a, in a place both in the geek community um, and in the mental health community where they're, they're, we're not the only ones trying to bridge that gap. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Take This, for example, is, is really trying to bridge – the geek community in general has been really resistant to mental health and mental health treatment, and Take This has really done a lot to uh, help promote uh, mental health within the geek community and, and uh, awareness of mental health. Um, and the therapy community is is in a place where it's it's also trying to reach out to um, to incorporate other ideas and other other ways to engage people into therapy. And so, 
um, I think a lot of this has to do with society and timing and and uh, things like that. But we are fortunate to be in a place where I think those areas pe- people want to see some combination. People want to see some overlap, and and we are able to be sort of a representation of some of some of the best parts of where that overlap can be. Excellent. So if people are interested in finding out more information about uh, your program and all the services you have to offer, where can they where can they locate you? They can find us at wheelhouseworkshop.com. Uh, we also have uh, Twitter and Facebook. Technically, I think we have a Pinterest, but we don't ever use that. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, pretty much uh, our website has you know lists of all the articles we've been in and other podcasts and things that people want to learn more about us there. Um, but it's a two, we're a two-person company, so if you want to reach out to us, you can also email contact at wheelhouseworkshop.com, and it will go to the entire Wheelhouse Workshop organization, which is Adam and Adam. Um, <laughs> Um, so, and we we love hearing from people uh, who have listened to the podcast or want to reach out and, and chat or ask questions. It's it's uh, an absolute joy to talk to people about the kind of work we do. So, if if you out there in the interwebs want to talk to us, please just send us an email. Um, our our Twitter presence is a little more geek oriented than our Facebook presence. Facebook is a little more mental health sort of because a lot of our um, Followers on Twitter are geeks, and a lot of our t- followers on Facebook are in the mental health field. So we sort of split it up a little bit like that. So if you want it all, follow us on both. That's a plug. Yes. <laughs> Again, that Venn diagram not really collapse, not really converging all that much. Exactly. But if you're in the middle of that Venn diagram, then find us at both places. Sure. And, you know, we have a newsletter and, and we have a YouTube page and stuff like that. But really, it's uh, Facebook is where it's probably easiest to find regular updates from us. But yeah. like I said, people should send us emails. We love to chat. Excellent. Well, thank you both very much for your time, and good luck uh, going forward with all the great work that you're doing out there. Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, it's been fun. Excellent. Excellent.